After setting before us the first concerns of the church, urging that both men and women pray for the society in which they live, praying especially for opportunities to reach out and to lead as many as possible to a saving knowledge of the truth, Paul specified who should offer those prayers publicly in the church. He said it should be men who can lift up holy hands before the Lord without wrath and dissension, and women who adorn themselves properly with good works and godliness. Paul then went on to remind us of the fact that men have been given the responsibility of headship in the home and in the church, and he now goes on to specify who among the men is qualified to serve as overseers in the church. But before he does so, he begins with a brief statement that sets before us the work of an overseer. We're continuing our study in 1 Timothy. We're ready for chapter 3 this morning. It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The office of overseer, what exactly is that? You know, the King James Version translates it the office of bishop and makes it sound like if a man has high ambitions and aspires to work his way to the top of an ecclesiastical hierarchy, that that is a good thing. But the whole concept of an ecclesiastical hierarchy is foreign to the New Testament. It was only after Constantine romanized the church that we find a pyramid formation taking shape in the church with various levels of congregational and regional authority. So I think it's less confusing to simply translate the word overseer. And that's really what it means in the Greek, coming from words that mean to go and see. It refers to a man or men who exercise oversight in the church. It's a word that's used interchangeably in other passages with the word we translate elder, referring to the age of a respected leader in the church. The term elder came into the church from Judaism where it referred to the elder male members who oversaw a synagogue and even served as judges in disputes between members. The term was adopted by the church. The aspect of elder member then turned more to maturity of faith than just age and applied to male members who were spiritually Mature, And thus the elders or overseers in the church were men who, because of maturity in the Lord, were given oversight in the church. Now, by the church, I'm referring to a local body of believers. Now, the apostles had authority over all the churches in the formative years. But there's no indication that elders had that widespread authority nor that such authority was ever given to one man. 
When Paul wrote to Titus, he instructed him to appoint elders in every city of Crete, indicating, among other things, that each city and most likely each congregation had its own elders. And do notice the term is plural. He was to appoint elders in every city. And that is in keeping with the typical references to the elders of a particular congregation. There's no indication in Scripture that uh, any church ever had only one elder. There's always more than one, and as we'll soon see, that was for good reason. And that's why I hesitate to be called the pastor of our church. You know, the work of pastor or shepherd is included in the elder's responsibilities, but to single out one man and call him the pastor gives the impression that he is the overseer of the church. But that's not a responsibility given to one man. There was always more than one overseer. Also, we need to note that uh, Titus was told to appoint elders in every city. He wasn't told to organize elections in every city, and, and that actually played into our decision 30-some years ago to do away with holding elections in the church. We had some uh, events take place that made us question the wisdom of following the political model of America in the church. And we did away with elections. It's now our practice to have the current elders select men who appear to meet the qualifications and requirements met in Scripture and who have demonstrated a desire to do the work of an overseer, who are actually doing the work before they're given the office. The congregation is then given the opportunity to affirm that those selected do indeed meet the qualifications, that no one is aware of something that might disqualify a man to serve, and the elders then ask the man to join them as an overseer of our church. That's the way we function. And I think it's good that we get a chance to review that in the context of what Paul is saying to Timothy. It's good to know some of the details of the church of which you're a part. This message may not speak emotionally to you, but I think it lays a foundation for understanding who we are and what we do and how we try to maintain the integrity God has given to us as a church. So I think it is, is important for us to spend time on that. So what then is the function of an overseer of a church? What's his job? Well, quite simply, it's to oversee a congregation. It's to make sure that what is taught and practiced in a particular church is in keeping with God's will. So how's that done? Well, first and foremost, it's done by being knowledgeable of God's word. When writing to Titus, Paul said that an overseer must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. An overseer must be able to teach the truth and to assure that others in the church teach the truth as well. So an overseer must know and understand and be able to apply God's word to decisions that need to be made within the context of a congregation. But then what about those situations that arise in the life of a church where there's no expressed 
directive in Scripture. Lots of details about organizing a church and functioning as a church are not mentioned in Scripture. So how are the elders to know God's will in those circumstances? They can't go to the Scripture and say, well, there it tells us what to do. How is he to know what to do? Well, I think that's where a plurality of elders becomes very important. When the early church was trying to determine how to incorporate Gentiles into the primarily Jewish church, the apostles and elders met as a body to discuss the situation. And then, after they became of one mind on the matter, they felt they had the direction of the Holy Spirit and made known their decision. We've come to believe that that should be standard procedure for elders seeking the Lord's leading. It's our conviction that in matters not expressly dealt with in Scripture, that we should seek the mind of the Lord by becoming one mind. So, as a body of elders, we refuse to act until there is unanimity among us. We feel that if each is truly seeking God's will in a particular matter, that we can be sure of understanding His will only when we've all come to the same conclusion. Now, some might doubt that any body of men could come to unanimity on a regular basis, but we do. And I believe it's because we are committed to knowing the will of God and we're all willing to put personal preferences aside. So basically, that is the work of an overseer. It's simply to oversee the life of a church and to ascertain God's will for that church. Now, obviously, there's more to being an overseer than simply keeping an eye on things. There are specific responsibilities in the areas of teaching and hospitality and shepherding that need to be done, but they all fall under the work of overseeing. So... Who then is qualified to do the work of overseeing a congregation? Well, Paul is very specific about this and lists for us many of the qualifications of an overseer, verses 2 through 7. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert? lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, Paul does list a few additional qualifications in his letter to Titus, and Some others can be ascertained from what is said about elders and the responsibilities in Hebrews and 1 Peter. But for now, I want us to just briefly touch on each qualification 
listed in our text for today. Paul begins with a general statement that an overseer must be above reproach. Now, obviously, that does not mean he has to be sinless, because if it did, no one can serve as an elder. The word translated above reproach literally means something that cannot be laid hold of, or as I like to put it, something without handles. It means that an elder should not have major flaws in his character or reputation that can be identified and held up as a reproach against the church. He's to be beyond the reach of condemnatory criticism. Whatever sin has been in his life has been properly dealt with, and he's kept clean from scandal by his openness and honesty before God and man. We constantly see how important this is in the life of the church. The news media loves to expose religious leaders who've been exposed as frauds or who have handles that can be laid hold of. This is a fundamental requirement of those in leadership. Then Paul says he must be the husband of one wife. And there's been lots of controversy about the meaning of husband of one wife. You know, Catholic commentaries suggest it means a bishop must be married to the church and have no other wife. On the other hand, some believe it means an elder must be a married man. It's been held that it means an elder cannot practice polygamy and have more than one wife at a time, or ever have had more than one, even if his wife dies or he's been divorced. A final solution to the dilemma cannot be found in the words themselves, for they literally mean a one-woman man. To insist that an elder be married, or that he never have been divorced, is to force an understanding on the phrase that may not have been intended. We therefore feel it's best to only insist that an elder be devoted to his wife, that he be known as a one-woman man, and that no one is able to question his fidelity to his wife. Next, Paul says he must be temperate. Now, some translations use the word sober, and while it can refer to abstaining from wine, it's more likely that it here refers to one who is sober in judgment, one who is level-headed and able to meet a trying situation reasonably and calmly. Prudent goes just a bit further and refers to the quality of being sound-minded, sensible, and self-controlled. The word translated respectable carries with it the idea of being well-ordered and therefore well thought of. It's a man who's respected as an honest and good man. So an elder must be temperate, prudent, and respectable. Then Paul says he must be hospitable. And when it was said 
This had special importance because good public accommodations for traveling evangelists and teachers were few and far between, but that does not negate the need for hospitality today. I believe elders should be known for their willingness to take in strangers and to meet the physical as well as the spiritual needs of those among whom they minister. Next, Paul says that an elder must be able to teach. And from what he said to Titus about an elder exhorting in doctrine and refuting those who contradict, the teaching aspect of an elder should be obvious. Paul then says an elder must not be addicted to wine. Now, while that doesn't necessarily mean an elder must be a total abstainer, Timothy will, in fact, be later told to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. It does mean that an elder must not be identified as a drinker. He's not to be viewed alongside wine. That's what the words actually mean. He's not to be thought of as a man who needs artificial stimulation or a chemical escape. And along with that, Paul says he's not to be pugnacious. I like that word. He's not to be a striker, a fighter, one who loses control and physically strikes out. Instead, he's to be gentle, patient, forbearing. He's to be uncontentious, not argumentative, always insisting on his own way. Then Paul says he's to be free from the love of money. He's not to be covetous of things or materialistic in nature. Now, that's not to say that elders are to be concerned only about spiritual affairs of a church and deacons the material. Some have suggested that over the years, that the elders should not worry about bills and expenses. The deacons should take care of that, and elders just deal with spiritual things. I don't think that's what he's saying here. In fact, when Paul collected funds for the saints in Jerusalem, he sent them to the elders in Jerusalem, not to the deacons. Now, the deacons were later given the responsibility of distributing the funds for the church, but the elders were to oversee those church funds. Next, Paul says an elder must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Because if he doesn't know how to manage his own household, he won't be able to take care of the church of God. You know, the way a man controls his home reveals his capacity for leadership in the church. And this ability is most obvious when there are children in the home. Paul says an elder must be able to keep his children under control with all dignity. And that includes two things. First, that he's able to keep his children under control. And uh, that doesn't mean they have to be perfectly behaved at all times. Kids will be kids and must be allowed to be kids. But limits do need to be set, and a father must be able to enforce those limits. The second thing is that he must be able to do so in a dignified fashion. If the only way he can control his kids is by losing his temper, he's not qualified to be an overseer of the church because he will not be able to manage with dignity. 
Then Paul says an elder must not be a new convert. The word literally means newly planted. He must be spiritually mature before he can oversee the church, for the church's sake and for his own. You know, it should be obvious why an overseer must be spiritually mature for the church's sake, for a church seldom rises higher than her leaders. For his own sake, Paul says he must be mature or he will run the risk of becoming conceited and falling into the same condemnation as did the devil when he got puffed up. Because when others look up to you, it's easy to begin thinking more highly of yourself than you should, and to begin assuming that your will must be God's will. Lastly, Paul says he's to have a good reputation outside the church. You know, the world may not agree with our priorities or understand us. We may be a threat to them and be viewed as enemies of their lifestyle, but we must nevertheless have good personal reputations in the world. Leaders can't be scoundrels or cheats or hypocrites, because if they are, they bring reproach upon the entire church, and the devil is able to effectively squelch the effectiveness of the church as a whole. Obviously, it's very important what kind of men are given the responsibility of being overseers of the church. And Paul is very explicit as to what qualifies and what disqualifies a man from being such. But don't let anyone suggest to you that these qualifications are merely ideal, an ideal that no one can reach. They're specific and concrete and very attainable. Even though, as we noted, the qualifications given to Timothy differ a bit from those given to Titus, they cover the same basic characteristics. So there's no reason to take them as simply suggestive that Paul is saying they ought to be kind of like this. He's saying this is what they must be in every point. And I think the safest way to approach them is to combine the lists that we find in Scripture. And then examine a man in light of every one of them. And we've noted every year on the affirmation what scriptures you should be looking at as you consider the men who are willing to serve. We put the list together in our mind. And this is something that the elders have done traditionally throughout the years. We've we've taken the 29 qualifications to be found in the various passages of scripture and placed them into four categories. The first is personal, within myself. Do I meet the personal qualifications? Then in the community, what about my reputation? How am I known? How am I respected or not? In the home, how do I handle situations in the home? What kind of relationship do I have with my wife and my children? And in the church, how do I function in the church? What do I do? What am I to be? We have that list of 29, and then... We take that list and examine ourselves to make sure that we are at least minimally qualified in each area. And then we prayerfully consider how we can improve in each area. And I think that's important. For example, 
Even though I may view myself as gentle and forbearing, that does not mean I can't become even more forbearing. So I seek to improve in that area. Just because someone meets the basic qualifications doesn't mean there's no room for improvement. And that's the point missed by those who insist these qualifications are merely ideal. They assume that to claim that you meet the qualifications is to claim that you're perfect in every area. But we do not see it that way. In fact, if you really think about it, what Christian shouldn't be respectable and hospitable and prudent and gentle? And should any of us be selfish, quick-tempered, brawlers, or materialistic? No. No. The qualifications really are minimal. And as a professor in Bible college once noted, the shocking thing about them isn't that they are so high, but that they are so low. Every one of us who claim to be under the lordship of Christ should be able to meet these qualifications laid out in Scripture for elders, with the possible exception of being able to teach, exhort, and refute, and not being a new convert. Other than that, we should all meet these standards. And indeed we will if we've surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So this morning as we bring this study to a close, I don't want it to just remain a contemplation about the church organization. I want it to become personal. I want you to look at yourself and say, do I meet these qualifications? Can I stand before God and say, yes, that's a description of my character and who I am and how I relate to people? If not, do something about it. Because these are basic qualifications of a Christian. This is the way we try to live our lives, every one of us. Obviously, those who are put in positions of leadership should be able to model all of those characteristics but everyone in the church should be able to exhibit them. That's the call. That's the importance of understanding who we are in Christ and what he's called us to be. So I want each of us to examine ourselves. I don't want you to just glance over that and say, whew, I could never meet those. I want you to say, of course I can. Because I've surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. I have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. I have the power of God within me, and I have instruction from his word, so I can do these things. And if I have a desire to move into a role of overseeing the church, if I can teach, and I can exhort, and I can reprove, and I'm not a newbie, I can do it. I think this is important. And it's very personal, very personal. You can be what Paul has said leaders in the church should be. If you'll yield to the Lordship of Christ, seek the help of the Holy Spirit, and you're willing for Christ to have his own way with you. I trust this passage has relevance to each of us today. Let's stand.